Hey, everybody. I'm about to have an interview with Bronwyn Berry, a show friend of mine doing a lot of passive house stuff. So stay tuned. So I was trying to catch up and read your bios and stuff and see what you're up to these days. Um, Sounds like you're very still much active in passive house, which is great. Um, hopefully that continues on. How, how much uh, how much traction is out there for that these days? You know, um, California still really, really disappointingly slow. Everywhere else, um, I'm actually just writing, a, I've been writing over the last two years doing the whole like, research um, into policy that's scaling high-performance building to really identify which policies are actually working. Because, you know, we did a survey across the whole of North America. There's lots of sort of passive house friendly policy or or policies that mention passive house or chuck it in the same bucket with a whole bunch of other things and you know give it a right give it a, a mention but really what i realized is you know not all of them actually um really stimulate implementation <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of it's it's very similar to netio it's you know, any high performance sort of methodology and whether you call it passive house or net zero or some other version of it that is not baseline code. Um, you know, really what we need to do is get much better at at stimulating the implementation side. because um, that's where the rubber hits the road, right? Um, you know, all the all the grand ambitions and um, goals that we we've, we've set, you know, even here in California, when you look at like what's actually happening on the ground, uh, you know, with decarbonization, and then you know you get to really where the product has to be installed in situ. It's a big mess, right? There's there's insane backups. There's challenges with, you know, whether the the system is big enough, whether the product actually fits the opening, um, all the other complexities that happen, you know, at, in the real world, right? Like where the right, builder right. actually has to install the product. And that's always, for me, been the point of most interest for me as, a, as an architect that kind of came up through really through the construction side of of design um i've always been you know i never really i never graduated through architecture school um just by function of i was an immigrant trying to do um a degree and a university and paying foreign student fees that i just couldn't afford as a as a sort of young um person here so i kind of back you know, backrooted my way into architecture by really doing internships in the field and actually doing real practical applications. So, you know, my, my work running the women's construction crew for Habitat for Humanity. I, yeah, I, that's so cool. Yeah, I, that, you know, was really seminal for me because it, um, you know, gave me a real perspective on you know, you could do a nice drawing, but if the person who actually has to put the building together can't reach a place without, you know, there's not enough room between buildings to swing a hammer, um, 
And, you know, if junctions can't be sealed, um, or you'll like this one, ducts cannot be installed in a, you know, there's just not enough space. There might be enough space for the duct, but the human being that actually has to put the duct in that place can't get there. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're always looking for new routes for duct work just for that, you know, the structural frame is in the way or no one thought about it or I mean, just secondary. All, yeah. Exactly. Those just yeah. very simple, pragmatic approaches to how we build and how, you know, like really, you know, upstream as the designer, that's one, you know, one trade, essentially, we're a trade, architects are, are a trade, um, even though I think architects don't like to think about themselves as trades people. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, we're you know we we have a serious responsibility to make sure that everything that we design can actually be built, and I think that's always for me been the where I've really focused my own career and been the most passionate about, and you know it's it's translated into now how do we work to get policies in place because I sort of went upstream from my own work after being, you know, immensely frustrated that our, our codes and our, our approaches to building just don't really function practically and translate to really practical strategies for implementation. Um, and that's sort of where I'm really, you know, policy now, finding the policies that actually scale real implementation is what I'm, I'm, I'm laser focused on. And it's been fascinating to see which policies are working um, and what's the mechanism inside of them that makes them effective. Because that's the second question um, you know, we've got to peel back that onion and, we, you know, we, we often sort of get stuck on the sur surface superficial um, without kind of going down the next couple of layers to the really, you know, where the meat really is get, you know, with the juicy part of <laughs> the <laughs> right. challenge is, is solved. Right. So, um, do you see a difference between um, the projects that are just the, the one-off custom build or the cottage builder versus the production builder? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of on that side of the fence these days. And so a lot of them, when I walk onto or into a meeting when we're in design meeting pre pre construction of a development, um, the architects there, but they're very agreeable to anything that happens on the table. It's kind of the opposite of what you just described, which I think is more valuable, which is, Hey, stand up and say, you know, let's redesign this. But I don't know if, I don't know if that fits in that world. And I was just wondering if you had a experience either side of that. Well, I mean, as you mentioned, I'm sort of really still been very much in the passive house world and focused on that because I, you know, early on in my career, I looked for a whole bunch of different solutions. And that was the one that fit um, with what I was trying to do. It kind of gave me as an architect a, a framework with very clear targets 
which I liked. So it was like, okay, very, you know, this is very cut and dry. It gave me the training to learn how to do it. And it gave me the tools to actually implement it and check my designs. You know, once you run it through the energy model, it's very clear, does it work or doesn't it? Um, so as a practical person, it really provided the structure that I appreciated. And, you know, we built a bunch of projects and we, you know, I worked with a builder very closely for 10 years. I worked with Alan Gilliland at One Sky Homes. And we, we structured ourselves as a design build company. And our, our mission was just to deliver buildings that actually performed as designed. So we not wanted- just designed beautifully, but <laughs> had some performance criteria behind the under the hood. All of that, you know, and design yeah. function, you know, has so many layers. It's just, you know, it's not just does the kitchen like, you know, can you reach the fridge, you know, and not work walk too far away to the sink, you know, ten steps, and does the bedroom and the bathroom function in the living room? You know, those are very practical things. But as you say, the performance part was always. You know, architects never really feel like they're responsible for that. And yet the deep irony is we have, we have massive control on that outcome. Um, and, I, you know, making that connection was really exciting for me because it really said, oh, wow, I can really control like how comfortable my clients are um, and how efficiently the house performs. And that really, to me, was kind of why I'm still really a big fangirl of Passive House. <laughs> it's like, you know, after 10 years, we monitored all our projects and lo and behold, they all actually perform exactly how we modeled them. And it was kind of like, oh, duh. You know, it's like if you've got something that works and, you know, it, you know, every time a coconut, it's kind of like, wow, why, why wouldn't you keep doing it? Right, um, exactly. So it was using the the PHPP the the package that would allow you to more correctly diagnose or analyze the performance versus yeah. the other tools that are out there that everybody else uses. Well, honestly, I never see architects even using energy models. They farm it out to a consultant to tell them what they need to do, but they don't actually ever drive the engine. You know, they don't drive that model themselves, and I think that disconnect again sort of like detaches them from the the agency that they actually have to actually fix you know make a building work and you know but going i want to go back to your question about production builders versus custom because i think it's really important um and it's an it's an opportunity that i think really we still aren't seeing custom uh, production builders really doing anything close to Passive House. And I think I, I was up in Sacramento a couple of weekends ago and there's huge subdivisions going out in the, you know, the northwest part, the Roseville area, massive new single family and, you know, sort of nicer um, subdivisions, our, our fabulous, amazing farmland in California is getting paved over i love doing this i'm sure you do too you go and <laughs> see, the, yeah, yeah. see the homes that are being framed up and you know walk around and you could see the you know the infrastructure right. built out and 
I was kind of astounded that these, even just the framing is so bad and they could save so much money by just doing it not even that much, you know, that was just a little bit better. So I was like, wow, they're leaving huge opportunities on the table that will have massive impact on the occupants, you know, for the next, however, you know, those buildings are going to be there for the next at least 80 to, you know, maybe 100 years. Yeah, it drives me crazy. But it's like, it's such a disconnected, fragmented industry. There's no... There's no captain at the helm, you know, it's multiple heads and it's, you know, you talk to the construction manager, he has high aspirations when it, when it gets down to the reality and the superintendents are saying, yeah, but I have a schedule to meet and blah, blah, blah. But all of those problems are upstream design problems that if they were fixed at the design stage would make all of those other downstream, you know, the foreman and the sub trades, you know, that's just a shift up upstream in how the building was designed, how it's, you know, like the structural engineering, and then even just the details of how, um, you know, the windows, that's another one that I'm looking at these just absolutely dreadful windows that I now, I can get really high performance triple pane windows made in the USA that cost minimally more than like your bog standard Home Depot vinyl. And again, it's this, it's this massively missed opportunity that. Right, right. You know, but, you know, again, production builders don't see the value in doing anything different because they can't sell the product for any more if they did it better or worse. Right. The, the thing that we try to remind them is that's fine and dandy, but now go look at the money you spend in the complaint department and the it's uncomfortable, the you know, the, you yeah. could get rid of that whole department if you had done the front end correctly. Yes. No. And I, I mean, as you say, you know, in some ways they can't sell it for more because they, you know, our, our, the way our, our real estate um, sales structure works Um the homeowner doesn't know the difference between the house that looks this looks good and the other house that looks good <laughs> because they can't see what's inside the walls. Right. And we don't Is there any, any movement in that direction? Because we were really pushing to get that on the MLS, but we would get shot down left and right. You know, um, I hear that all the time. You know, there's certain cities. Berkeley has a point. The city of Berkeley has a point of sale disclosure. We have to um, disclose the energy bills. I don't know how much traction that's actually getting, but the good thing is um, uh, one of the new CEC um, uh, commissioners will he or he works in the in the Energy Commission, Will Vincent. He is making it his personal mission to get that on the radar and get it actually daylit, so that we can differentiate between a great performing building and a, just a bog standard like baseline dog. Right. Exactly. Cause yeah, I equate it to like back in the day when we were buying cars on the lot before the sticker got on the window, you just, they look the same. They both have four wheels and they're shiny. So they must be equally performing. So yeah, 
it'll get there. I was just wondering what the traction was. No, I mean, I, I honestly, I've, I've sort of shifted away from trying to intervene in baseline code because I've found it to be a completely, um, I don't want to be too derogatory. Um, <laughs> uh, just, just not worth my time. Um, because you're fighting an uphill battle against massively entrenched um, entities who, who, who don't want to do anything better. They want to do the least amount that they possibly and legally can. And, you know, that's not the sandbox I like to play in. And it's, it's sort of working with people who are not motivated to do better. Um, so, you know, policy-wise, what I've, what I've finally figured out, and it you know, also took me a while, and <laughs> full disclosure. Yeah, who to hang with and who, who to avoid, yeah. Yeah, and also to focus, you know, and this has been part of this policy analysis, is figuring out what are the policies that are actually working and why. And, you know, we've seen the programs that are fantastically effective are the the top end incentive programs like um, NYSERDA's Buildings of Excellence program, where it's giving serious incentive for the people who actually are interested in doing better. It's supporting them by helping them with upfront sort of modeling and analysis, which is, you know, does take more time. And then it's supporting them by giving them actual real money in the, you know, the fund project, in the first um, pilot projects to supplement the sort of small upcharge that the developer will have to pay to do a better building. And, you know, the front end of that program was also training. NYSERDA gave um, a 50% off subsidy for anybody who wanted to sign up and take um what classes like the Certified Passive House Consultant Designer class. And when the utility or the efficiency entity in a state says, we'll give you 50% off to do this training, people actually go, oh, they want us to do that and they're helping us. And so they signed up. So, you know, New York State has the largest number of qualified professionals know how to do pacifies in the whole wow. of North America. Wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. And, you know, this has been part of this policy analysis I've done. We've looked at, okay, where are the actual qualified professionals who know what a high-performance building actually looks like, who have the training for how to do, you know, just those simple like air sealing details, thermal bridge-free details, and ventilation right. system design. <laughs> huh. Wow, that's so cool. And Because they've the, always kind of been the leader anyway, the Northeast and NYSERDA specifically is, you know, yep. weatherization and even the blower door development, all that way back in the day was from up there. So, wow, that's so cool. And and the, once they're in the classroom, you have them hooked, right? You, you got their attention. They, they, they have to... Well, hear the messaging it, and yeah and i mean these are it's still voluntary right like it's so people who already are predisposed to do better you're supporting mm. them right you're saying right, right, okay right. good we like we want more people who want to do better and you know honestly that's the magic 
that's the, the three magic ingredients are support the people who want to do better. Give them all the you know, additional. And then what happens, what we're seeing, the number of projects, high performance projects in that state of sky is, is just going exponentially through the roof. And then what that does is it makes products available, much more high performance products that everybody has access to, whether you're going to do a high performance building or a baseline code building. And it also makes the bottom end of the market have to go, oh, shit, you know, I, like these guys are doing this, this, and this. I better, you know, buck up and figure this stuff out or I'm being left behind. That's a, that's a very cool model. You know, tr tr teach them, train them, provide them what they need all at once. And then there's no reservation of taking the next step. Exactly. And, you know, we've... We, we have this sort of mentality where we want to keep focusing on the bottom end and we put enormous amount of money into code compliance, getting more people to just comply with the worst possible building standard. And honestly, I, you know, I've written in California for 10 years. I've, my projects have been penalized by the code structure. And I'm kind for of like... For being better, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, and we've just known, you know, that that yeah. wasn't. I remember when Nabi was trying to get his permitted and they were giving him a bunch of crap and he had to put in all that electric resistant heat. It's like, are you kidding me? Exactly. Yeah. You know, so yeah, again, we, 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 we focus on the wrong end of the market. We pen and then we penalize the people doing the stuff that we actually really need. And that's just so wrong. And so. You know, but it's just how we've we've built our entire industry, and um, you know that's really what I'm trying to shift and show people. Actually, we need to flip that, um, and it's, so it's why I'm not. You know, I don't bother with you know code comments anymore. Although I did try for ten years to try and at least get more <laughs> yeah, testing. <laughs> You get tired of pounding your head against the wall and say, oh, enough. I'd Waste rather hang time. out with cool people who want to make a difference. Yeah, I yeah. hear you. So now I'm really focused more on how do we support the top end and how do we get programs um, that replicate what NYSERDA has done. Um, and we, we're, ma we're getting some real traction. I mean, Mass Save is the next sort of real front runner. Um, we've seen... Um, you know, the Pennsylvania low-income housing um, financing program for, you know, multifamily buildings, that's a massive winner. Um, so really I'm, I'm trying to really daylight the programs that work and I'm trying to scale and get those implemented everywhere, including nice. here in California, which is sort of a game. Yeah. <laughs> so is that what you're, I mean, what a great state to be in is that is that kind of uh where you want to play or do you kind of see yourself pushing stuff outside of those state for for other states that want to make movement so we're you know i'm, I'm at my you know i i was one of the founders of passive house california you were in that group early on one of the early um you know members and advocates for that i i've sort of transitioned out of that role i served as the board president there for 10 years and then handed it off to um, 
a bunch of a local um, board members and I went on to help found the Passive House Network, the national uh, Passive House um, entity. And I've been, you know, was the board chair there for 10 years and have just transitioned um, to focus on policy. Um, so I'm the policy lead. I chair the, the policy committee and um, we're, we're pushing this policy model across the country. Um, we're, you know, we're making some good inroads. We've, we've got some really awesome stuff happening in Colorado. Um, there's a fire rebuild program there that just came through for the Marshall Fire that um, gives 37500 bucks to people who rebuild as a passive house. That's some real money. That's real money. Yeah. Um, so we're working, you know, across the country. I'm, I am still working here in California. We've got um, the Public Utility Commission just issued a report on policy that I helped really um, shape. Um, it was written by some really fabulous um, consultants um, through Opinion Dynamics, focused on uh, multifamily because we think multifamily is really the, the key front um, runner model. But, I mean, I'm showing from 10 years of data with my, my projects with Alan is we can build Passive House for um, equal or less than code compliant single family. And that's the message that we have to put out there is that's the, the unknown to them. And that's why they don't want to look in that box because well, they don't know just, what the cost is. It's a design, it's a design solution and, you know, getting right design the upfront, you know, it's the whole magic with, with anything transformative is if you have you have to go upstream and you have to look at like the the easy win you know the big the big moves and you know we we in our whole code structure it's the the low-hanging fruit got picked a long time ago right and now it's the hard stuff and people you know you know but you don't the hard stuff doesn't have to be that hard if you start with a better baseline building, right? Like you're not trying to do 20 gables on a thing with five dormers on each direction and all this yeah. junky nonsense. That would be my fear is they would just want to take their, their old plan X and just slap a new design on it and throw it out the door and call it passive. Yeah. No, I mean, that's yeah, always what people want to do. And that's, you know, there, you know, that way, you know, is just that's a road paved with disaster, and right, right, it's definitely not going to be cost effective. <laughs> right. When I was talking to Graham, he he was pretty convinced that it had to be done factory built versus site built. Are you in that same, or do do you think it just depends on where you're standing? You know, I've I just done my first prefab panelized project with a, a collaborating. It's a project I'm doing in Colorado Springs. Um, so I've been working all around the state and and also um, in Colorado. I'm, I'm licensed in Colorado as well. Um, mm -hmm. I really like the prefab factory. I've, you know, I've been an advocate for that of that for ten years, and 
you know, was trying to solve right. prefab panels back in the day. Um, right. For custom, it's very difficult because each project mm. is a one-off. But for production... Yeah, it's got to be a kind of a factory setting where you just print out 30 of those walls or whatever. Yeah, yeah. for production build, it's totally a no-brainer. And, like, again, right. like, if you're doing the same cookie-cutter house on, you know, 20 of this of the of the lots in your subdivision if you're not doing a factory build you're just losing a massive opportunity to really you know do things in a very cost effective systematic way but again it requires a lot more upfront coordination and architects and you know engineers you know i was kind of surprised about how much more it was a lot more work for me as the architect and for the structural engineer to really dial in the panel details because it's you know you can't just say well, here's the you know here are the hold downs and here are the connections these are the beams and then you give it to the contractor to figure it out in the field right <laughs> i mean it's and the contractor ends up like in on site like Oftentimes, you know, it'll be like, oh, okay, well, I've got a hole down here, but, you know, the window is there and I've got all the additional, the king and the jack and the, the cripple to, you know, I can't get my hole down right against right where it is on the structural engineer plan. So he's <laughs> forced to do a lot of that integration on site. And for prefab, you can't do that. You have to have it, everything completely integrated and planned upstream <clears throat> because it's got to be built right in the factory and there's, you know, you can't fudge it. You know, when, when that panel gets to the job site, it's got to be nailed right onto the right spot. Right, right. Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe that's not the right model for the production builder. Well, as actually, far as... it could be and it, it should be. Um, you know, you can do simplified prefab where you only do the framing. I know... You know, there's a guy in California, Jerry McCoffrey, is doing his Integra um, prefab framing, and he's doing great. You know, I think um, that's sort of scaling pretty well. You know, when you get to passive house level, the the level of you know, I think passive house community actually is really driving prefab um, because we get the benefit of having your insulation and your air sealing and your weather barrier all integrated on the ends, oftentimes your windows and sometimes even your exterior sheathing can be all added in the factory because we get the quality control is better in the factory than on the site. Um, and I think, you know, we are already predisposed to doing a lot more of the design up front, you know, we've already like, you know, if you're trying to do passive house and you don't already have all your HVAC stuff laid out, you know, all your structural integrated because you've got to look at where your connections are, where your thermal bridges are. Um, so you've already, you know, done most of that stuff upstream and it's really just a function of coordinating your panel construction and your structural engineering um design with the panel manufacturer so right um so a lot of front end 
coordination, collaboration, sitting on the round the table and which is right. This is my concern is that production builders don't really have that except for their own in-house crew. And then they occasionally go, Hey, call the structural engineer, get him in here to check this one thing. And there's, there's this disconnect between what you're describing is, which is a much more valuable team, figure it all out on the front end. Then it's just pumping them out after you've perfected it. Well, I mean, I'm amazed that production builders aren't really pushing this because it does all those field issues that inevitably occur are just taken away. I mean, in the speed of the construction, three days to put the whole thing up and 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 like dry it in, done. Um, so you're you know you're just transferring. And I have to say, for prefabrication, the whole there's you know the sales pitch that gets used is it's much faster to build, and I would I would push back on that a little and say it's faster in the field. That time that gets saved in the field it actually needs to be done in the planning stage. So you're just shifting you're shifting the the time the construction time upstream to so design length might get longer but production length gets shorter exactly and you know that's and maybe the design length would get shorter too over time as much as they perfected it just gets shorter and that's where their profits would skyrocket exactly i mean and particularly for production building you're doing the same design you're kind of repeating it's rinse and repeat i know so right you know i think you know we're i'm finding that my details are shifting and changing to suit, you know, and as I do more of these prefab projects, um, you know, my skill level in designing specifically to that and then making my drawings fit that right from the get-go rather than having to, you know, re-jigger them, then, you know, it's like any new system. You, there's a learning curve, but once you figure it out, Right. And I was talking to Graham about that a little bit. And he was saying that now he's, I don't know what he did to the spreadsheet, but now you can basically plug in a climate zone and it'll tell you kind of the best suite package and maybe some alternatives. And it's like, and that's what the production side, I'm not talking about our, our frontier people that actually go out there and do the stuff that needs to be done, but on the production side, they don't want to know. They just give me the recipe. Tell me what to do. We'll, you know, we'll provide them in our energy modeling five scenarios. And then they, they tell us which one they're going to go with because they've got a better price on an air conditioner or a better price on their insulation or whatever. So that kind of shifts. Yeah. Oh, now I went That's from column A to part. column C. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like the HVAC system is like, duh. You know, I mean, honestly, that's like the, if that's, that's not your barrier, I can tell you that. If you, like, right. And that's the thing that, that's so interesting about, again, design solutions. Your design is like 70% of your HVAC, your building. You know, I can do, and I just did a whole, you know, I've, I've shifted and trying to do some affordable multifamily buildings. I did a prefab um, concept design that I, I actually won the, the Architecture at Zero um, award for. I'll kind of do a little humble brag for myself here. Um, but, you know, exactly that. It's it's um, prefabricated wall, um, straw-insulated wall panel system. 
and you know basically a a very simple design that can be a fourplex or a sixplex it's exactly the same footprint but it's got lots of internal flexibility in how you lay it out internally and then you you know cut and paste it on a site so an entire neighborhood subdivision same design and and really what i found is i designed it for visalia in central california but that wall assembly it was very simple um you know it it was thicker than it needed to be by code, but it was sort of the basic panel that made production sense for this this um, building type. You know, wood wood. It's a wood box filled with straw, um, and it was you know it's about 10, 10 inches thick with, and then you add cladding. Yeah, and it wasn't any cheaper to make it skinnier. Um, but it, it sort of worked for a bunch of different climate zones. But when I put it in Colorado, I could actually get exactly the same heating and cooling demand. So my HVAC system stayed exactly the same, but I changed the wall assembly. So again, architectural solutions. And then the HVAC stuff was just like, well, for Colorado climate and California climate, you know, one, my heating load and my cooling loads flipped slightly, but they were still super low. And my HVAC equipment was still like, I could use the same HVAC. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's, it, leave, leave the HVAC load kind of where it is, but move, move your values elsewhere. Yeah. In it's higher insulation, better roof, better tightness, whatever that is. And keep the mechanical the same yeah. box, whatever your box preference is, because they're all going to heat pump, but they're all just being steered by code. Exactly. Um, no, I mean, that's, that, that's an interesting concept. So it's, your architecture, your envelope is your HVAC system. It just does, it does the heavy lift first. And then right. you put the, you know, the little bit of heating and the little bit of cooling Right, right. You know, that's what your mechanical system delivers. So what's your what's your go-to these days, HRV, ERV, and how are you cooling? Um, I, for, for many years now, Alan and I have, have used here in the, the Bay Area, honestly, HRV. We haven't needed an ERV in, in this particular climate. Um, with an integrated heat pump delivering the heating and the cooling through the ventilation system. So the classic passive house formula that everybody else got scared of and said, oh, no, 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 that's not, um, no, you can't get enough heating or enough cooling through the ventilation ductwork. You have to like, and what we figured out that, again, design solution we made sure that the architecture actually made that des HVAC design work. And it was a function of, you know, if you, you know, why that doesn't typically work is if you put um, your living spaces in like the northeast corner, which is cold, right? 
those rooms will need more heating and all the other rooms might not need as not enough. And so your ducting and then your delivery through the, the ventilation system gets to be, you know, you can't really do that. So what we, you know, we made sure that our room layout was actually workable for ventilation, heating, you know, conditioning through the ventilation system. And if we, you know, so we would put our um, bathrooms, which we would normally do a small point source heater in, which you want in a bathroom anyway. So a small electric mat, a heat mat underneath the floor at the vanity that was on a timer. Just boost the heat a little bit in that room, and it's an extract room anyway. So you're you're sucking air out of that. You're not delivering air, but you're delivering your heating through a different mechanism. And then the rest of the house was just easy. So um, you know, again, simplifying the mechanical system, but integrating it with how the architecture of the house is laid out. That's interesting. So you're shifting around zones to better fit the machine, being able to push heating or cooling around yeah. the structure. That's that's cool. It's house as a system. I mean, it's like what we all in the you know home performance industry have been talking about for yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of the next level for sure. But that's that's cool. Yeah, because when I when I was working with Bill and Graham way back then, we were trying to think, okay, what is the best box? And I always pitched that just build a box. It's really nice, tight, whatever thickness you need to make it for that climate zone, and then put all your interior walls wherever you want them. But at least the box was easily built, quickly built, and then you could add all the ornamentation after it. Nowadays, they're just wrestling with. I mean, I'm I still again I'm talking production, but you know, flying beams out through the patio and trusses hanging out and all kinds of weird stuff that, you know, they just don't get it. And then they'll follow the model, you know, they'll push a little bit, but at the same time, they're so dependent upon either their HVAC sub that won't guarantee it because you're not doing X, Y, Z or the insulator misses stuff all the time. And the Raiders don't catch it, you know, multiple, multiple. And so I just try to figure out what, what is a better pitch for them? So I'm always looking for new stuff. Yeah, no, I think, Kevin, that's, you know, I think that was where we all sort of started. And then, you know, what I've sort of realized in the journey is that nobody wants just a basic box, right? Like everybody wants something that still looks great, functions great. And you don't actually have to have a basic box. You, you know, in fact, there's infinite number of solutions that work, but they still need to be essentially simple, right? Not necessarily a box, but you can't go too far outside of, you know, you can't go crazy. And anytime you do, you know, like an H shape or, a, you know, really elongated corridors, I mean, you're losing multiple functionality by elongated design anyway, because. What do you need for, you know, if you've got to get to a room all the way at the end, you need a corridor, right? Corridor is a total waste of space. It's like total dumb square footage that you just basically are throwing away because it's not, you know, it's just a fun, it's like a road inside your house. And, you know, that's, 
yeah, that's real estate that's just totally wasted. So, you know, compact shapes have really awesome functionality, but, you know, what I'm seeing with my designs is, you know, having done this for 12, 15 years now, it's, um, keeps, <laughs> keep realizing it's been longer. Um, there's lots of fabulous design solutions and there's opportunities within the constraints of like simple and you know exploring that has been kind of the fun part of what i've been able to do and i you know figuring out like oh you know constraints are really awesome because you, you get to be creative within those constraints yeah it's no fun if you can't stretch your imagination or your creativity and just pumping out the same thing that would get boring really quick yeah it's not uh, a challenge yeah. right <laughs> right right <laughs> so i'm just i mean i keep harking back to the production but i'm trying to figure out ways to kind of make a bigger dent like i couldn't want a one-offs but i'm I, I'm in front of more builders now that I can bend their ear a little bit, but I have to bend it carefully and not push or not pull, but hear them, hear them, what they're going through. Right now, I'm I'm currently residing in Alabama, and there's a lot of housing stock that just is idle. Either they're, you know, material shortages, labor shortages, whatever, the, and they're all kind of suffering because of it. But it's just a shame if, if they would have adapted a different business model or different production model, you know, five years ago, they probably wouldn't be in this crunch. They'd be selling them left and right, producing their houses in a building somewhere else under their nice comfy factory and erect them in a week or two and be done with it. But they, they just are so concerned about what they can sell today and next month. They're very short-sighted. Uh, not to bash them, but that's just their reality. No, and honestly, they've been pushed into that because that's how a whole system is structured, right? So, you know, I think what I would recommend is find somebody who is either pressed enough, like is really like in a tight bind, that is finally now willing to look at an alternate solution or find somebody who is just more predisposed to do different. And they're, you know, like once you work with the front runners and the people who are, you know, I mean, just, you know, there's a, there's a social, you know, science um, statistical curve of, you know, it's a bell curve of, you know, there's the laggers, there's the mass majority of the market, and then there's the front runners. It's the front runner people that are always going to be more inclined to try new um, and be a little bit more adventurous. It's just just the human spectrum of like people, you know, some are just much more open to that. Those are the people you want to find and work with them. And then they will, you know, like once they're figured it out, everybody else will look at them and go, what are they doing? And why is what they're doing working? And so that's kind of what I've, you know, figured out. And you can apply and you apply it to everything. I mean, I, I realize that's, you know, I'm kind of naturally predisposed to do, um, you know, never really interested in being, you know, c 
unconventional and <laughs> running with the herd. It's just right. not interesting to me. So, so you're more careful about picking your battles these days and yeah, and your partnerships and your, yeah. So the same with policy, figure out who's, yes. you know, find the people that are actually open to doing different and work with them, support them, um, show them, you know, what's possible. And, you know, now I've just, you know, we've identified all these policies that are actually really working. We've, we've analyzed what's, you know, what's the functional ingredients of those policies? Because these specific mechanisms right. that are common to all these these programs that are actually really accelerating. And I was like, wow, once you get the pattern, it's a, it's like a recipe. You can just, you know, rinse and repeat, right? Right, right. So, you know. That, that's great advice. I mean, and that's, that's kind of what I do, but I... Uh, I hope others do that too, because it just spreads and that's kind of what we've been doing for the last 15 years, right? Just kind of spreading the word and yeah, uh, it's, it's fun and exciting. And, yeah. Um, we have a few minutes, but I just wanted to make sure that uh, if there's anything that you want to share, talk about that, we get to it. So, um, you know, um, what can we do for you? What, where do you need support? Well, you know, what's so interesting is we, you know, we, we're scaling this policy, um, these policy patterns, and we'll be issuing our report in June, the, the sort of final, the final version. Um, we're, you know, we're always interested in working with with people who who want to do not just better, but much better. It's the, you know, it's the wheelhouse that we've been, you know, we've decided that's, you know, that's our value add. The passive house community is, you know, we've always done that. That's kind of where we're you know, where we're, can, can add value. Um, and I think, you know, interesting new territory that we're um, opening up. Uh, we just released our pH ribbon tool, which is embodied carbon calculator. Nice. Um, Specifically for Passive House, it's an integrated plugin for the PHPP energy model. So that would the goal is to show you the emissions. Your embodied based on a design mm -hmm. carbon for the materials that you select for your project. Can you? I mean, I know we only have a minute. Can you educate me where? Are they all going to be using the same criteria? I mean, if I buy a two by four in California, does it have the same? Right. I mean, so it's no. does it shift or how do how do you track it? How do you? So you there, you know, um, it's using the the database that was developed by um, EC three. So it's U.S. specific um, database. We had the we had the tool adapted specifically for the U.S. market. It's all in IP units as well. Um, and it's it's using the the EPA's um, carbon emissions uh, for your specific grid. So you plug in where your project is. It uses the emissions, the transit, and the utility emissions for your specific grid region. And then the materials are calculated based on where they source from. And we still need the EPD for them. So it's you know it's using the database that. Um, EC3 um, building transparency has developed, so it's it's using a, a localized database, and 
all of that specific material, you know, where you're purchasing it from, who's manufacturing it, gets calculated in. So it's um, it's still early days. There's lots more that you know. There's big gaps in that database, but we saw that database as being sort of the most robust one we could we could use. Um, but the real magic of this tool is that we're looking at operational energy with embodied carbon energy in the same model. Yeah. Most That's what I've always hoped for is that connection. It's like two sides of the table, but you got to look at the whole table. Exactly. And that's the deal, you know, why we, when I saw that, I said, oh, that's what we really need. And I kind of connected with the developer and had him adapt this for our U.S. market. So um, it's a Passive House Network product that we're, um, you know, we've helped make sure we, we brought it to market here. And um, again, it's that connecting the two the two sides of that table because most most models either do only operational or only embodied carbon. And when you when you don't look at them together, you actually come up with different like. Yeah, you might have the same thing built over here, but move a hundred miles and it might change everything or some of it or. No, and what's, yeah, very cool. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, and what it's really blowing my mind on is that efficiency, making your building more efficient really matters because when you add PV into the model, it blows the numbers out of the water. And I never. I was just going to say it must kill you on the embodied side. Yeah. I was shocked at how yeah, heavy yeah. of a carbon embodied carbon footprint PV has. And not to say that PV is bad. I think PV is great, but. Right. It's kind of hard to say that in the same breath, right? It's kind of, you, you know, the damn, you've, you've seen the data now, you've seen the connection, the analytic. And no one really hears that on the other side of the fence. They're just saying, oh, look at all that nice PV on the, that whole community. It's got some serious impact and we need to be, we need to make that visible because it changes the choices that we make with our buildings. Knowing that now that we didn't know 10 years ago, mm-hmm. would you have a different list of advice to give to the CPUC? As far or you know their directives, you know all the solar that they wanted to slap on. If they would have known that, you know what we just talked about, well, I don't think they would have gone that road down that road. You know, um, there was a huge push. I mean, I know you know anybody who's been in the efficiency kind of world for a long time. There, there was a huge push because everybody said, "Well, PV is cheaper than more efficiency." It's cheaper to add more PV than it is to add more efficiency because we weren't looking at the embodied carbon footprint. Right. That was just a closed door that everybody ignored walking down that hallway. They just It was always there, but no one looked at it. Yeah. Well, I think we just didn't know and it wasn't visible. Now we know. And I think, you know, I'd, I have to say I didn't know either. So, I, you know, it would be a sort of, you know, easy to say, oh, should have, you know, would have, should have, could have. But now we know. Um, and, you know, the CEC is now trying to add battery storage into the code as, you know, for, and I'm like, no, no. But yeah, there again, you're just throwing another widget into the mix that's going to have problems for the next generation when they have to go pile them up in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah. I mean, they only just are starting to require blower door testing now, 10 years later, and that has massive impact on energy use. 
that's never been credited. The model wasn't really calibrated to actually register the benefits of what, what that can do. And those, so the basic stuff still, you know, nobody looks at thermal bridges. I was at a KBEC conference, you know, who do, those are the folks who do all the energy models for all the code compliance. Only right. one person in the room had done a thermal bridge calculation. <laughs> or, or understands the definition. Yeah, I get it. I know. It's, yeah. it's These crazy. are the low-hanging fruit things that still haven't been even, you know, looked at and considered. Air sealing, thermal bridges, no-brainer, not calculated. So we've got massive opportunity. We've got lots of opportunity to learn more. Um, and again, I, I'm a huge, if there's one takeaway, if there's one message I will leave you with, anybody who has any influence, if you're not supporting the front runners, you're doing it wrong. Right. Yeah, we have to stand behind them and support them and catch them when they fall and pick them back up and push them forward because you're absolutely right. All the help you have available. Those are the people that will change your market and they will drag the, the reluctant people um, behind them. They will always be kicking and screaming um, and that will never change. So, you know, shift your focus to the people who actually want to do better. I totally agree. And I, couldn't have thought of a better sign off. <laughs> what, what a great way to end the conversation. I thank you so much, Bronwyn. Um, and keep up the great work. Please keep us posted what you're doing and those efforts. And I'm going to keep preaching passive house and low emissions till I die. So I'm, I'm right there with you. If you ever need anything, you give us a buzz. Okay. Fabulous. Thanks, Kevin. And thanks for all, all your right. own work. It's great to see you also still plugging away. I'll try to get out to California one of these days and come visit you guys. I miss everybody over there. So awesome. <laughs> All right. Take care, Bronwyn. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.